Here's a simple principle for understanding Christian salvation. As it was for Christ, so it is for the church. Things happen to Christ, then they happen to us. And they happen to us in the order that they happen to Christ. For example, suffering, then glory, as much of 1 Peter tells us. And Christ, we were told back in chapter 3, was put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. This is why, Peter said, at the end of last week's text, this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are now among the believing dead. They are judged according to human standards in the flesh, but they live according to God in the spirit. Christ was vindicated at the resurrection. The Christian dead will be vindicated at the resurrection. And there in last week's text, we saw that the apostle directed the church to the risen Christ, who is, he said, ready to judge the living and the dead. Ready to judge the living and the dead, right? That was the note that was present at the end of last week's text. It is arresting to any reader of this epistle just how persistent and how unwavering Peter is in directing the church to the end, to the coming judgment, to the appearance of Christ. Let me just recap what he has said thus far in this regard. And here, I'll just leave to the side the fact that the whole book is addressed multiple times to exiles and sojourners and strangers in the earth. We are born, he says, at the beginning of the epistle, into a living hope, into an inheritance reserved for us in heaven. We are waiting, he says, waiting for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our faith, he says, is being tested so that it might result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. We are to fix our hope completely, he says, on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. We are to conduct ourselves in fear during the time of our exile looking to the day of God's visitation for our vindication. The whole Christian life, we saw, is like living in the time of Noah, Peter said. Building, waiting for the flood. And so we should arm ourselves for suffering, knowing that those who abuse us will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And that brings us to the end of last week's text. Right? The risen Christ is ready to judge the living and the dead. Christ's resurrection means he's ready to come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. 
since he's the first fruits of the harvest, his resurrection means the general resurrection of the dead at the end of the age is already underway. Imagine, imagine a field ripe for harvest. You go into the field and you reap the first fruits, themselves ripe and ready. What does that mean? Right? By that very act, it means that the whole field is now ready to be harvested. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits. His resurrection means the eschaton is at hand. The risen one is ready to judge the living and the dead. So we'll make two points today. The end, they're in your bulletin there on the outline, the end and the ethics. So first, the end, the end. Peter opens the text. Again, this is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. He opens it with, the end of all things is at hand. Right? Not the end of some things. Right? Not the end of the Mosaic law or anything like that. The end of all things is at hand or near. How could it not be so if the risen one is ready to judge the living and the dead? Now, I submit that this is mind-bending stuff. The end of all things is at hand. And we have to be willing to have our minds bent by the Holy Scripture. Even when it says stuff to us like this, that seems to completely mess with our stable sense of space and time and order. The end of all things is at hand. I mean, to some, this is clearly ridiculous stuff. All of this apocalyptic fervor. We want to say, calm down, Peter. I mean, who can live like this? Who's supposed to go through their life and through their day and through their week? I've got kids to raise. I've got a job to do. I've got all these things. I've got this list. I'm supposed to live as if the end of all things is at hand? This is just a psychological impossibility. What am I, some sort of crazed, frothing-at-the-mouth guy on the side of the highway holding up one of those the-end-is-near signs? I mean, after all, Peter says this 2,000 years ago, and the end has not yet arrived. So what am I supposed to do, stir myself up into some state of perpetual frenzy? These are really shocking words when you come upon them. Maybe it was just wrong. That's what many moderns say. The problem beloved, with this way of thinking is that it refuses to have its mind bent and shaped and reformed by the text. Peter does not mean chronologically near. He means something like theologically near. He means we are in the last stage, the final movement of God's redemptive plan. 
Right? Because Christ is risen from the dead, he's now ready to judge the living and the dead. Have you ever noticed how in the creed, right, it goes from Christ is risen, he's ascended on high, and what's the next thing it says? He will come again in glory. We're waiting for that movement. Peter means that the end has broken into this age in Jesus Christ. Paul calls him the last Adam, and the word he uses for last is eschatos, the Adam of the end, the final Adam. He brings the end. He is the end of all things himself, appearing in time. And when he appears and he begins to preach, what does he say? The kingdom of God, the future itself, is at hand. And thus, Peter means here that the end sort of stands over us. The end impinges upon us every second of every day. Think of it this way. The end of all things which is now veiled is ready to be unveiled. It is right behind the door. And thus, things are not as they appear. That's at least part of what this means. Or as James puts it in his epistle, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Right? In that sense, if there's a judge behind the door, the judge is always at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Now, we say this sort of stuff a lot around here. And the reason for that is simple. Right? The Bible says it a lot. Hundreds of times it says it. Fifty-one times it alludes to it in this short epistle of 1 Peter. Remember that? I don't know if I gave you guys these numbers. But if you count the allusions to heaven or to the end, or to the second coming in 1 Peter, it's 51 The book only has five chapters. So what do you think the great theme is? It better be something alluded to more than 51 times. No, this is the great theme. And here, and this is the area I think where we have to convince ourselves. Here we will see that Peter thinks this is profoundly practical. He thinks this is profoundly relevant for your life on the ground, that without a sense that the end of all things is at hand, we do not have Christianity. We have something else. It may look a lot like it, but it is not the genuine article. Because Christians live and speak and think and act under the sign, under the conviction, under the living, pulsating reality, that the end of all things is at hand. That is, it has in fact already appeared in Jesus Christ. So Peter thinks that this vivid, mind-bending reality, the end of all things is at hand. He thinks it's the beginning of Christian ethics. He thinks it's the beginning. Calvin 
commenting on these very words from 1 Peter thinks the same thing. He says this. Peter says this to rouse us from the drowsiness of the flesh. Reminding us that the end is nigh. So that we ought not, get this, so that we ought not to become rooted in this world from which we must soon remove. Calvin continues and says, we tend to promise ourselves an eternity in this world and to live as if the end will never come upon us. But, he says, if the trumpet of Christ were to sound in our ears, that's what's happening when Peter says the end of all things are at hand. That's that trumpet on the last day when Christ tears the heavens apart and appears with the saints and the angels and that singular trumpet of the final judgment, that's what's happening in your ears when Peter says the end of all things is at hand. And so Calvin says, but if the trumpet of Christ were to sound in our ears, it would rouse us with alacrity quick, quickly. And it would not allow us, Calvin says, to lie slothfully. Right? That's Calvin. That's what we Calvinists should embody. To put it differently then, to put it differently... There's a fundamental drowsiness, right? A sedated, numb, this-worldliness. A blindness to the coming eschaton which characterizes lives lived without this banner over them. And so Peter writes to shake us awake. The end of all things is at hand. So that's the end. Now let's look at the ethics that flow out of this orientation. And here I'm going to make four subpoints. Four subpoints: prayer, love, hospitality and gifts, because that's what Peter talks about. Prayer, love, Hospitality, gifts. So first prayer. Notice, notice here the key first word. Therefore, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, eschatology shapes ethics. The end or the future, shapes the present. The end rouses us, as Calvin puts it. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be alert and be of sober mind. So it turns out that being focused on the end does not create madness or hysteria. It turns out that it's sobriety itself. There's a kind of not just numbness or drowsiness to a life lived not focused on the end. There's a kind of drunkenness to it, a kind of swerving around. Right? Peter says this is sobriety itself. It is living without the end in sight, which is a form of madness. And so here the end 
creates an alert, self-controlled, clear, right-thinking mind. As Peter put it earlier in the epistle, a mind girded up for action. A mind fixed on the coming of Christ. And so we have Peter, right, the one who fell asleep when the Lord prayed in agony in Gethsemane, now urges us, be sober and alert, so that you may pray, he says. So this is, this is fervent and focused and rational prayer. So how practical is this orientation? Let me put it this way. This may be a little bit provocative, but I think it's what Peter's saying. He is saying you cannot pray aright if you do not think the end of all things is at hand. Paul prays, for example, in Philippians 1, for a number of virtues, right, to to be manifest in the lives of the saints of God. But he concludes that prayer with, so that you may be blameless in the day of Christ. That's always the implicit hidden reason we're praying for one another or for someone who's sick or for some other cause. We are praying so that we may stand blameless in the day of Christ. The day of Christ, the coming glory, the resurrection of the dead, these things shape the apostolic praying, and they are to shape our praying. And so a text like this forces us to ask ourselves, do we hear any notes, any accents of the end of all things being at hand in the prayers we pray? To ask the question really is to answer it. Whatever we are doing in prayer, it is often not a consequence, a therefore, that works like this. The end of all things is at hand, therefore, pray. We may be praying for the sick, we may be praying for this, we may be praying for that. But it is rarely a therefore, a consequence of the end end of all things being at hand, and yet it should be, indeed it must be, because the very heart of Christian praying is praying, thy kingdom come. And to pray that is to pray for the king to come. To pray that is to pray Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. There's no proper Christian praying without the end of all things being at hand. And the second ethical consequence of the end, indeed one that Peter says is above all, in verse 8, is love. Above all, as the chief thing, love one another deeply. Love each other like you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and live with each other in glory forever. Right? If the end of all things is at hand and the trumpet of Christ is about to sound in your ears or is already sounding, then you're going to treat people differently. Love each other deeply, 
fervently, Peter has said to us earlier. And we do this, and this is beautiful. We do this, he says, because love covers over a multitude of sins. It has something of the atoning mercy of Christ in it. Right? The book of Proverbs says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Love, in overlooking, breaks the cycle of offenses. That's the beautiful thing about this kind of love. It acts as if no offense has been committed. And then the matter dies. Because love covers it. And thus thousands of opportunities for division and strife die. Love covers not just a few, not a reasonable amount, but a multitude of sins. Because we commit a multitude of sins. Seventy times seven sins are covered by this forgiving love as we heard in the gospel lesson. And so to show this kind of love is to reflect the mercy that we desire from God on the day of Christ. Right? Peter would think, would say to us, if you don't think the end of all things is at hand, if that's not a vivid reality, you will not cover a multitude of sins in the love of Christ properly. Because when you're oriented to the end, then you realize, I want to be judged in mercy. I want the measure that God uses with me to reflect the measure I use with other people. Right? Loving one another this way, covering a multitude of sins, is to live as if the end of all things is at hand, as if the judge is standing right at the door and he's going to ask us, how did you love one another? So that's love. The third ethical consequence here is in verse 9. Hospitality. Offer hospitality to one another. The, The word for hospitality here is literally love of the other or love of the stranger. Remember, Hebrews 13 says, Do not neglect showing hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Even hospitality may have heavenly beings involved in it. This word probably referred in the early church. Remember, this is an age where there are no motels. There are no inns. And so the church would put up Christian travelers, like the apostles and other missionaries, or needy travelers in general. But here in this text... It focuses on showing hospitality to the body of Christ. Look at the words. Offer hospitality. Notice it's a command, by the way. Offer hospitality or practice hospitality. It's a command to one another, the text says. To one another. Notice this. Without grumbling. Without grumbling. It's such a note of realism. Offer hospitality Without grumbling. It's easy to grumble and complain, maybe even to complain about having to practice hospitality. But Peter knows what he's about here. 
Because well done, hospitality, the sharing of food and drink, it helps overcome estrangement and suspicion and emotional distance. Without hospitality, the church will not be as healthy and as unified as it is called to be. But again, this is rooted in the gospel for Peter. Right? This is not just a thing to do. God has been hospitable to us in Jesus Christ, taking us into his house, feeding us at his table, treating us as honored guests, fellowshipping with us and renewing us in love. Hospitality, then, is to embody and to enact the gospel. It has the shape of the gospel built right into it. And it anticipates the coming wedding supper of the Lamb in a concrete way. That is, those who do hospitality well know, they know, the end of all things is at hand. Every meal has something of the eschaton in it. It points to that final banquet and that final supper. So fourth and finally, gifts. Each of you, Peter says, should use the gift that you've received to serve others. So, every person in the body of Christ, right, not, not some elite group of people or some subset, every person, every single person, is to use every gift to serve the body. The gifts and talents you have really are not for yourself, they're for others. And God distributes these aptitudes and these abilities and these talents, he distributes them liberally throughout the body, Grace takes all these various multifaceted forms. And the gifts here are to be deployed, Peter says. We're to be faithful stewards. And what are stewards? Right? Stewards are administrators or managers who are ready to give an account to their master. Stewards understand that the end of all things, the return of the master, is at hand, and you are a steward of the gifts given to you. So even the gifts that function in the body of Christ don't function right. They are not seen in the appropriate light unless we are people who think the end of all things is at hand. And in verse 11, Peter breaks the gifts up into two classes, speaking and serving. If anyone speaks... They should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. He's probably focused on public preaching and teaching, but we can all speak the word of Christ to one another, to each other in exhortation. Those who serve, he says, should do so in the strength God provides. For these are gifts, remember, of the Spirit. Right, And that means they are gifts of the power of the age to come. Right? The Spirit is the gift of God Himself. God who was and who is and who is to come. The Spirit is the down payment of your inheritance. The Spirit is the foretaste of the resurrection. And so the gifts of the Spirit also remind the church that the end of all things is at hand. The presence of the Spirit is the presence of the end. It is the presence of the risen and ascended and coming Christ. All of this then, praying, loving, Offering hospitality, speaking, serving, has one great end, the text says. One great end. 
what our catechism calls, in part, the chief end of man. Namely, to glorify God. Right? You'll see that there at the end of the text. We serve so that, in order that, in all things God might be praised through Jesus Christ. Here is the beauty of living in light of the end. It makes a person thoroughly theocentric, God-centered. God and his glory, God and his light, God and his coming fullness and splendor. Paul calls us to this kind of God-centeredness in Colossians 3 when he says this, whatever you do, in word or deed, right, in speaking or in serving, whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Right? We seek this glory of God because the end of all things is at hand. Because this glory is destined to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Right? It is destined to irradiate every single person and thing. And to transfigure the cosmos. Why do we give praise to God? Why do we seek God's glory through Jesus Christ? Because that's the destiny of the cosmos. That's what happens when the end, which is now at hand, arrives. This then, this glory of God, is the goal of ethics at the end of all things. There is no thing in the Christian life that can be pried away from the end and sort of stand on its own. This is the goal of Christian living, Christian ethics at the end of all things. Notice this connection in the text using the words all things twice. The end of all things is at hand, and then at the end of the passage... Glorify God in all things. The first all things, the end of all things is at hand, enables the second all things. Therefore, glorify God in all things. And it's fitting, fitting, that the text ends with an echo of the cry for the kingdom in the Lord's Prayer. It ends with these words, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen.